So this funny thing happened. Um, as I was sitting down to start preparing for this morning, uh, I received much like a word from the Holy Spirit, an email from Domino's Pizza <laughs> that said in the title of the email, you deserve something cheesy today, which like struck me surprisingly deeply, I think because I had like already put on my thinking cap. Um, and I started asking myself all these questions like, do I deserve something cheesy today? <laughs> Probably not, to be honest. Um, but I certainly would like something cheesy today. In fact, I would like something cheesy most days. What I would really like, actually, would be um, to be like guaranteed a Domino's pizza every day of my life, <laughs> delivered to my doorstep wherever I am. That's what I would like. So last week, Charlene Brown spoke, um, honestly, what felt like sort of directly to my spirit. She painted this portrait of a man who had been waiting so long to be healed that it had actually become like painful for him to try and sustain that hope any longer because every time he opened himself up to hope, he was disappointed. When Jesus asked this man, do you want to be made well? He answered Jesus and said, every time I try, somebody cuts me off. It's not really like an answer to that question. It's almost, um, it's like a protection from hope. But Jesus sees straight through that. He sees that man where he is, longing for healing, but like too afraid to hope, and Jesus heals him. I think the reason that I actually would like a pizza to be guaranteed to be delivered to my door every day is that um, eating, the fact that my body needs sustenance in order to live, is one of the most vulnerable things about me. It's one of the most vulnerable things about all humans, all creatures. And it's a type of vulnerability that we don't get to decide if we're going to open ourselves up to. Like we don't get to decide if we're going to be, if we're gonna to hope to be fed each day. We just are, we just do. I was thinking a lot about this, um, a couple of weeks ago when Kate Bowler spoke, how our bodies are deeply vulnerable just by the nature of being bodies. And sometimes that fact can feel really scary and really unfair because it opens us up to pain and to hunger and ultimately to death. But I also think that there's like another side to this vulnerability. So just this week, um, I got to hear Dr. Ellen Davis at the Divinity School introducing a ballet, sort of like theological ballet. And she was speaking about how our bodies in all of their like radical contingency, all of their vulnerability to 
time and space and limitation and decay, how that fact, that vulnerability, is also what makes our bodies intimately reflective of the holiness of creaturely life. She was talking about um, liturgy and about dance and about art, these ways of like bodily participation. But I think she could have been talking about food as well, just as all of these means by which we experience God's grace. So um, I know that as much as I would like to cut myself off from vulnerability by having a pizza delivered to my door every day. Don't worry, this metaphor is going to stick with us like all the way through today. (laughs) If I um, were to have that happen, I would actually be missing something. I'd be missing the celebration of everything food that is not pizza. I'd be missing participating with like my oven mitts and my spice cabinet, and my neighbors, and my neighborhood. I'd be missing being drawn into sort of the rich dependency with the whole material world, except for Domino's Pizza. So what I'm getting at here is that our body's need for food is both a vulnerability that can cause incredible anxiety and fear, but it's also a means, uh, a means of grace in that it constantly opens us up to delight, to creativity, to each other, and to the Lord. And I think it's like this vulnerability, this perennial constant fact that our bodies are contingent that Jesus speaks directly to with this fourth sign, the story that um, Jack just read for us. So our text begins today with Jesus Um, sitting up on a mountain. And Jewish readers probably would have heard something about Moses in that idea. And this huge crowd starts like coming up the mountain towards him. A a huge crowd. And the text says that 5,000 men were counted, plus whoever else was there. By the way, happy International Women's Day, everyone. (laughs) So tons of people. And Jesus' first reaction, instead of being like, wow, aren't I amazing? Um, Or reacting in fear, saying, what are all of these people expecting from me? Jesus' first thought is just to turn to the guy next to him and to say, hey, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed all of these people? Jesus sees the crowd and is just like, immediately attuned to their physical bodily needs. Um, and I, like, love what follows this. Oh, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. Oh, thank you. Yes, we're getting the text up there. Um, but I'll also tell you. So the, the author gives this tip to the reader um, about Jesus' words. He says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And I love that little tip because it, Um, gives me this image of Jesus as having sort of like a twinkle in his eye about this. He's so like unthreatened by this giant crowd of people coming towards him. He's so unconcerned that he can turn to Philip and make this like total dad joke where he's elbowing him and saying completely straight-faced, hey, where's the nearest bakery? (laughs) So speaking of dad jokes... 
my dad actually used to do something like this to me when I was little. We'd be in a restaurant or a coffee shop, and he'd get the check and just immediately hand it off to me, like five-year-old me, and say, you got us, right? Um, And as I'm thinking back on this, I'm reflecting, I'm realizing that that was like only funny to me as a kid because I had so much faith that my dad was actually able to pay and that my dad was going to take care of me. So for Jesus to ask Philip this question is to say, to ask him, okay, who am I to you? What have you learned so far about who I am? And Philip's answer is like exactly how so many of us would answer. He's like, "Um, Jesus, bad news actually. Six months wages wouldn't be enough to feed all these people even one bite. It, this answer makes me wonder what the disciples actually thought of Jesus as they grew to know him more and more, like prophet, dreamer, Lord, teacher, yes. But did they think he was any good at accounting? I don't know. I don't know that it would have been easy to look at Jesus in the Gospels, who's like overturning tables at the temple and healing people and talking to Samaritan women and say, "Um, yes, Lord, I trust you with having our budget up to date. Philip is, he feels responsible for sort of counting the cost, the economic cost. He's running the logistics of provision in his mind, and he's coming up with this answer that is deep in the red. And It's easy to sort of stand in judgment over this answer, Um, but I know I oftentimes find myself aligned with Philip's logic in this as I think about God's provision in my life. I think like grace, yes, faith, yes, trust, yes, great ideas and great ideals. Um, But the, the moment that I'm looking at sort of a massive need, whether that's like for myself Um, or for someone I care about, some sort of like insurmountable deficit. I don't think of Jesus as the most practical of options. I sometimes like to keep Jesus um, like at church and at coffee dates, um, but away from my Excel spreadsheets. But then right after this, there's like a spark of something else. It's this statement from Andrew And you can picture him like just a little ways off and he's like, hey guys, I found some food. And he's pulling over this kid with five barley loaves and fish. And I'm imagining the other disciples sort of like rolling their eyes and you can sort of hear the deflation in his voice right after this where he says, yeah, but like what are are they among so many? And then there's like this moment, there's this tension And this boy's just like standing there holding his bread. There's this question of like, what do we do? And I know if I were there with the disciples, I would definitely start with them sort of problem solving, trying to find a way out of this. I probably would have reasoned like, these people aren't our responsibility to feed in the first place. If if this crowd was so enthralled by Jesus' teaching and signs that they would follow him all the way out here, they were probably expecting to have to skip a meal. Like, didn't they know this party is BYO lunch? And it's this tension, this moment of 
complete loss where Jesus steps in and says, and this is actually like, this is my favorite part of the story. Jesus says, have all the people sit down. This statement in my mind changes everything. Imagine a crowd of 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 people, all those elbows touching, all of that uncertainty, all that noise and chaos. Maybe you're there and you're like afraid of losing your kid in the crowd and you're starting to wonder like why you even came there in the first place. And Jesus takes what might have felt up until this moment to be an interaction driven by scarcity in which only those who can elbow their way to the front might receive a healing. And he performs a radical de-escalation by asking everyone to sit down. This change in posture changes the expectation for what type of event this is. Um, At the beginning of this year, I was um, doing this like, I was helping with a scenario-based training for Duke resident assistants. And the room that I was in, the scenario was this violent altercation between two people. So we were sending in like RA after RA into this room and they were getting just like steamrolled by these actors who could not be stopped yelling at each other and trying to hit each other. Until this one RA goes in and he separates the two for like just a second and they're about to start at it again and this RA goes, hang on, let's all sit down. Um, and the actors, like, they didn't know what to do. They just froze, and they sat down on the ground where they were, and everyone in the room just burst into applause because the entire environment of the room changed with that act of sitting down. No longer were these two opposed to each other and about to fight. Instead, their bodies said that they were having a conversation and that they were ready to receive from each other. So just imagine 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 people sitting down on a great deal of grass. I love that we're given that detail. There's sort of like, there's a sort of humor in that. There's a wonder, like I imagine this sort of murmuring going over the crowd. There's a certain expectation that comes from sitting down. You're forced to sort of yield up your anxiety your ability to push towards and forward for whatever you need or want, and suddenly you're waiting to be served. Jesus shifts the crowd's posture from competition to that of welcome guests seated around a table. Okay. Then Jesus does something amazing and something that only God can do. He takes the loaves and he gives thanks and he distributes food to all of them until they are satisfied. Jesus gave out food, gave out bread and fish until every person was satisfied. Jesus 
breaks the push and shove, the competition, breaks the accounting of scarcity, breaks the fear of dependency brought on by bodies that need to eat and instead invites 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 people to share a meal together until they are satisfied. So this year I, I switched over from my coursework at Duke Divinity School to my social work program. And to be honest, it has been um, a, a long year of feeling sort of like personally dismantled um, by everything that I'm learning. Oppression, marginalization, the, the way that certain groups of people can become so afraid of their own contingency and dependency that they choose to amass resources around their lives, around their own futures, at the exclusion of other groups. And then they, we, I, put up blinders, um, only go to certain spaces, sometimes only work in certain institutions um, so that we don't have to think about those who are excluded so that we can be guaranteed um, like a pizza every day guaranteed safety and provision. I think when we use um, language of protection of like our resources, when we draw lines around resources that are ours because we're so afraid of our own fragility and in doing so we like target and dehumanize and sometimes exclude certain types of people, I think we're, we're building on a foundation uh, on economics of scarcity. But Jesus looks at 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 people, and he sees their communal and physical need to be sustained, to be filled. He sees the way that um, scarcity has shaped them to be competitors with each other, and he invites them instead to sit together and to eat together. This sign is not just one day's provision, but a picture of a kingdom in which equity and communal joy is born from a posture of thankful acceptance. Kingdom eating changes the vulnerability of our bodies from the very reason that we would grasp and amass and exclude into the very reason we have to know each other and to care deeply for each other's needs and to share in abundance. I'm thinking about this, um, this shift in posture and this beautiful meal in terms of our season of Lent in which we oftentimes take up or give up certain physical habits in order to like reorient ourselves to the realities of um, human fragility, to the need for repentance. And I wonder what it would mean, what it would look like to give up elbowing to be the first in line and instead to take up the practice of sitting down among former competitors to receive hospitality. 
I wonder what would happen if we gave up resenting our own human fragility and instead took up seeing our dependency on others and on God as a gift, an opening that helps us participate in giving and receiving with thankfulness. Even scarier, I wonder what it would mean to yield up our budgets and our grocery shopping and our daily logistics to the prompting of Christ, who seems to be operating in a different economy altogether. This this shift in my mind is connected to what the prophet Isaiah talks about, this fast that can loose the bonds of injustice and undo the yoke and let the oppressed go free. It's like a practical, tangible eating discipline that has these huge consequences. To share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing spring up quickly. There's a huge invitation here to let go, to be fully human and fully needy and to trust God. This trust is sometimes very scary. All the, I'm going to say all the time, very scary. <laughs> I love there's um, this like tiny story in Matthew 16, just like this little scene where the disciples realize that they've forgotten to bring bread with them for the day. Um, and they're all nervous. They're like whispering to each other, like, we forgot the bread. And Jesus is trying to tell them this parable about yeast, the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples are whispering to each other, like, he's talking about yeast because we forgot to bring the bread. They just like can't get their minds off of that fact that they messed up. And Jesus is like, Come on, you of little faith, he says. Did you, did you not just see me feed 5,000 people? Like, weren't you there? Did you not, like, gather up all this extra food? Like, stop worrying. But I, like, get this. I do this. It's hard to remember, especially when it's, like, it's every day that we get hungry. It's every day that our bellies and our lives are going to confront us with this question of what posture towards the Lord we're taking. And it's sometimes, I think it's sometimes easier when we're on like a spiritual high, when we're like, well, at least I brought these five loaves and two fish. But it's hard for me to think, to, to trust that the Lord can provide for me when I've like messed up and when I've forgotten to bring bread altogether. I think somehow that like my sin and my failure will make God stop loving me and I zip right back into anxiety about providing for myself, about taking control. When like the truth is that we never deserved a pizza in the first place. It was always a gift. So our failures are just inconsequential to God's delight in loving us. My freshmen that I work with have been trying to teach me to talk like an 18-year-old. It's pretty fun. And if I were to try and summarize this whole story in their words, it would come out something like this. Jesus is so basic and like also 
totally extra. So I'll interpret for you. Jesus is basic because he, he validates a basic need by providing basic food. He recognizes the physical vulnerability of the people there um, and turns bodies into a site for sharing and connection instead of exclusion. Um, but Jesus is also being like kind of extra here because there's this miracle, but then there's the overflow of the miracle. There's 12 baskets of overflow. But what's extra here is not cheap. It's not cast aside. It's not trampled. Instead, Jesus asks that it be gathered carefully and treated preciously because all of it is a gift. So there's another way that this story is extra. A a sign is something that's going to always overflow the words that try to define it. And this language that John uses to describe this miracle as a sign tips us off that there's more going on here than like a one-time bonanza of providential baking. Jesus himself, thy presence and provision is the one who moves people from being unnamed competitors into being a community gathered around a meal. Jesus himself moves the disciples from fearful accounting into wonderment and gratitude. The the bread in this story is bread that's going to disappear. And these people are going to be hungry again. But this story reveals that Christ himself is the gift of life that will not cease to satisfy, that is given freely in God's ultimate hospitality to us as created beings. In this next chapter, Jesus says it. He says, I am the bread of life. Christ himself is a new type of bread, a living bread. He's both the host and the feast and endlessly gives of himself so that we might be free from the anxiety of decay and instead completely open to God and to our neighbors in a communion of delight. This isn't a one-time show. It's a sign of the kingdom that is come in the person of Jesus. So when we talk about like living in a different economy, this economy of abundance, there's, there's no such economy without the paradoxical provision that is born out of, but really in spite of suffering and death. This is what we celebrate in the Eucharist each week, that Christ's incarnate and risen body radically reconfigures us. It shifts our posture towards God, towards all materiality and all creatures, because now materiality and creatures are signs of life instead of competitors or sites for exclusion. Last week, I was on the phone with one of my closest friends, and I was expressing to her 
how fearful I feel for my future, which is like all of grad school. Um, but I was, I was telling her how sometimes I, I feel like I have no safety net, like I'm on my own. I don't know if anyone here relates to that. And she told me with just like incredible sensitivity, she said, God will take care of us. And that just like hit something in me. I started, I started weeping because she pinpointed exactly what I felt like I was not sure was true. I didn't know. I couldn't remember who Christ is. And I think that is exactly the space. That's the tension where Christ delights to enter. Christ delights to come there and to whisper to each one of us, please sit down. Please prepare to receive. Jesus delights to serve us bread, to serve us life, to give of himself. Christ is not afraid of scarcity, is not limited by economics. His love is not just spiritual, it's physical. It's redemption waiting to fill our bellies and to embolden us to share with each other, to start in vulnerability and to find our end in communion and delight and hospitality. So will you actually... I'm going to end us in prayer, but I'm just going to read the prayer that's on the card that you've been given for today. Um, feel free to read or just to listen. Um, yeah. Lord, thank you that you came not primarily to give bread, but to be bread. Thank you that in your life being broken, our lives are made whole. We thank you that in you, there's always more than enough. Gracious King, we ask that you would help us to live in such a way as to honor you by receiving the gifts of grace that you have lavished upon us. Help us to love our neighbor, knowing that we belong to a Lord who allowed himself to be broken for us. Amen. Amen.